test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in, him, in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked, for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. The word of the Lord. The Lord be with you. Um, welcome to our service, and I just want to lower this mic. <laughs> Getting shorter. Um, uh, thank you for uh, those of you who prayed for our uh, session retreat this weekend. Uh, we had a, a good time, uh, as we do on, on these uh, retreats. Uh, I want to just uh, alert you before I begin, uh, next Sunday will be our joint uh, Thanksgiving service, and you will have an opportunity uh, to make three additional offerings. So uh, first, the Operation Christmas Child boxes are here, so uh, we will be collecting the boxes next Sunday, so you can make an offering uh, through that. Um, secondly, we'll be taking the final week of collections for the Lamu Kenya project. So if you want to uh, contribute to that church plant in Lamu Kenya, uh, next Sunday is also the last week where you can make a contribution for that. And thirdly, uh, I want to remind you again that next Sunday we are asking everyone, or at least one member of your family, uh, to offer a word of thanksgiving during the service. And so uh, we're encouraging everyone to write this down on a piece of paper. God, you gave me, fill in the blank, that would have been enough. The ideal is that, you know, if only God had just given me this, it would have been more than enough, but you gave me so much more. And so we want everyone to come 
And again, I just want to encourage you to just write it down, just, just one sentence. If you want to explain more of it, you're very welcome to do that. But uh, we'd love for just everyone to come up and say, God, you gave me a friend when I was lonely. That would have been enough. And so uh, I hope you will do that as an offering of Thanksgiving. So the uh, Operation Christmas Child, the Lamu Project, and a word of Thanksgiving. So you can bring those uh, additional offerings uh, as we celebrate together Thanksgiving next Sunday. Uh, Let's pray together. God, we thank you uh, for the opportunity to give you thanks for all the good that you have done for us. Remind us once again of the truth of your gospel as we finish now this uh, study that we've been doing together in Paul's letter to the Galatians. Now in the hearing of your word, God, open our hearts and minds to receive what you would have for us and in the hearing, help us to obey. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So this is now the ninth and final sermon in the series of sermons on the letter that Paul wrote to the churches in Galatia. Throughout the letter, Paul is making his case against the false teachers who have been misleading the Galatians away from what he says is the one true gospel. He has been pleading with them through the use of scripture, through reason, through their shared experience, that there is only one true gospel, the one that he received by revelation, the one that is acknowledged by all the apostles. Against those who wanted to add these elements of the Jewish law and ritual, Paul has been uncompromising in his rejection of any and all additions to the gospel. He has been clear that one is justified entirely by faith and faith alone, and that any addition, any addition to faith in Jesus Christ alone, any rule, law, ritual, is unnecessary, and in fact, it destroys the very gospel for which Christ has died. And so in the previous chapter, Paul argued that it was for freedom that Christ died us, died for us, and that those who are in Christ, that those who are living in community according to the Spirit, will then bear the fruit of the Spirit. In freedom, in Christ, nothing of the law matters, only faith working through love. In freedom, the Christian community then voluntarily and lovingly binds themselves to one another in mutual submission. And now in today's reading, Paul gives us some examples of what this freedom in mutual submission in the spirit looks like. And so we might think of this as sort of the final application of what he has been writing so far. So first, he says that we are called to a ministry of restoration, a ministry of restoration. He offers a hypothetical situation in which someone is caught in a trespass or overtaken by a trespass. The verb here conveys this notion of suddenness or surprise so that the person is just overtaken as if on sudden impulse. This is not some sort of a habitual sin that this person is engaged in, but is caught by surprise. Perhaps he just, you know, an impulse he enters into sin or makes a mistake. Or it may be that Paul is talking about that this person is surprised by being found out. Either way, it's a reminder to us that every faith community, even those led by the Spirit, are prone to trespasses. Today we have the instrument of social media to immediately judge and condemn. But even back then, as we see in stories like the woman caught in adultery, 
people were just as likely to judge and condemn as we are today. It's a warning for us. The response of the church is not to be judgment nor condemnation. It is to be this ministry of restoration. Paul says that those who are spiritual should restore the one who has been caught in a spirit of gentleness. Those who are spiritual are not some super class of Christians that you know, Paul is talking about here. Those who are living in the Spirit, led by the Spirit, those who have bound together themselves in love, in the Spirit, bearing the fruit of the Spirit, one of which is the Spirit of gentleness. Those who keep in step with the Spirit understand their voluntary obligation to one another and they live in this freedom to restore those who have been caught in a trespass. In other words, those who are spiritual is the church. It's the church keeping in step with the spirit. St. Augustine said, there is no sure test of the spiritual person than his treatment of another's sin. Note how he takes care to deliver the sinner rather than triumph over him, to help him rather than punish him, and so far as lies in his capacity to support him. Similarly, Martin Luther, in his commentary on the book of Galatians, gave this advice. Run unto him, and reaching out your hand, raise him up again. Comfort him with sweet words, and embrace him with motherly arms. Paul, too, in the letter to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 2.5, offered similar words for someone who had caused him pain. So you should turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you, so I beg you, he writes, to reaffirm your love for him. This is the ministry of restoration to which the church is called. There is no hint of retribution. We are not called to set up court, to judge, to punish the guilty. Rather, in a spirit of gentleness, we are to restore them to the community. The word restore here itself is very helpful. This word occurs in Mark chapter 1, verse 19, to describe the mending of the fishing nets. It appears again in 1 Corinthians 1 to describe the restoration of a community to unity. And it appears in 1 Peter 5 to describe something that is perfectly joined together. Among other uses, the word to restore was used medically to describe the setting of a dislocated or a broken bone. That's what it is to restore. It is this idea of bringing something back to its original condition for usefulness. Eugene O'Neill has rightly noted that all humanity is broken and that we live by mending. We live by the mutual mending of the Spirit. It's vital that this work be done, and it matters very much how this work is done. You might recall back in May, uh, our mission partner, Sung and Heidi, sent us a newsletter uh, from Kyrgyzstan about their son Isaiah who, who fell playing and he, he broke his arm. And so they took him to the, 
doctor, they set the bone. Um, but as the days passed, they realized that the doctor had done a terrible job of setting the bone. And it was like, like turning green. And so they had to uh, fly out uh, on an emergency to uh, Thailand. And when they took the x-ray again, they realized that the doctor had set the bone uh, off by 20 degrees and that he was going to have all kinds of lifelong problems. So they ended up actually re-breaking the bone to, and resetting it and inserting uh, a new set of pins. I mean, it's like, it's like as a parent thinking about like someone re-breaking your child's bones to reset it, it sounds horrific uh, and painful. But they had to do that because you want to restore it Rightly, it matters. You can't, you can't just put it together any which way. It has to be done in the right way, in a spirit of gentleness. That's what Paul says here. It matters how we put ourselves back together in community, in a spirit of gentleness. And unless we are walking together in this spirit, we cannot restore one another in this spirit of gentleness. Paul is thinking not just here about this sort of like feeling of gentle or acting in a gentle way, but I think he's here talking about walking in the spirit, the work of the spirit, who the spirit of gentleness, the Holy Spirit of gentleness, that that is the spirit in which we must restore one another because only the character of the spirit and the power of the spirit can bring about this work of gentle restoration. Because otherwise, we, we are much more prone to judge and to condemn and perhaps at best to pity. And so Paul calls here for self-examinations to watch yourself so that you do not either fall into the same temptation and trespass or have this you know, false sense of superiority over the one that you are restoring. Instead, he says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Here, I think Paul is using this phrase, the law of Christ, ironically. It's as if he's saying, you know, you Galatians, you want to follow the law so badly, this, this law about circumcision and rituals. All right, then. Then fulfill the law, but fulfill the law of Christ by bearing one another's burdens. Instead of keeping the, the law of circumcision, keep this law, the law of Christ. The law of mutual bearing of one another's burdens. You know, he says, yeah, I know you've got stuff, your own load that you have to carry. That's fine. You do have to take on personal responsibility for your own load. You cannot assume or demand that others take up your own burdens. But bearing your own burdens and bearing the burdens of others, it's, they're not mutually exclusive. It's part of the same common call that we have. There are things that you have to carry that you have to carry on your own. But we've also got to be willing to carry the burdens of others because some burdens are simply too much for anyone to bear alone. Every day, I know that people are carrying all kinds of burdens. The burdens of loneliness, of doubt, of depression. The burdens of of financial and physical challenges the burden of of relational challenges in family life. And what makes it so much harder, I think, for many of us is that we are so reluctant to ask for help, to admit that we need help. It's this delusion that we live with that I am strong enough or that I don't want to bother others 
or I'm too embarrassed to ask for help. It's just pride. Some of you maybe think that, you know, they ought to carry their own burdens. I'm carrying that burden. Why can't they carry that burden on their own? I'm sucking it up. Why can't they? But what might be a light load for you, what might be a manageable burden for you, doesn't mean it's manageable for others. You and I don't get to decide what kinds of burdens are burdens for others. The only thing that we get to decide is whether or not we're going to help carry that burden. Remember the words of Jesus, his criticism of the Pharisees. They tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move with so much as a finger to help them. So instead of judging, instead of doing it by yourself, Paul calls us to bear one another's burdens in a spirit and in the ministry of gentle restoration. Second, he calls us to do a ministry of doing good. A ministry of doing good. And here he uses this common metaphor of sowing and reaping to call us to do good. Doing good is just another way of expressing our faith working out through love. And, you know, there's so many lessons that we can get from this idea of sowing and reaping. But Paul here highlights two aspects. He says that you reap what you sow. Um, I've told you many times I'm not a farmer or a gardener, but I know this much. If you plant tomato seeds, you're going to get tomatoes, not potatoes, right? What you sow is what you reap. So it matters what you sow. Like if you want tomatoes, you have to sow tomato seeds. If you sow to your own flesh, Paul writes, you will reap corruption. That's the law. But if you sow to the spirit, then you will reap to eternal life. If you sow hate, you will reap anger and violence. But if you sow generosity, you will reap joy and gratitude. It's it's a law. And second thing about sowing and reaping is that there is always a time of waiting between the sowing and the reaping. You plant seeds today and you have to wait months, perhaps years, before you can enjoy the harvest. It takes time. There is just no way to compress that time. A farmer can't wait until the very last day to plant his seeds because it's not going to be harvestable the next day. You've got to do it when the time is right, and you have to allow that gap. And during that time of waiting, you have to water, you have to prune and fertilize and all that other stuff, and there's going to be this temptation along the way to quit because it's hard. It's hard. Life together, church, ministry can be hard. And there is this always this temptation to quit, to give up on people and ministry. But Paul says, keep at it. Keep at it and you will reap. As an encouragement to keep going, to doing good, he makes clear that this reaping is not the result of our works, but that it will be made possible by God. That's the promise. Verse 9 and 10, he uses this word kairos twice, meaning uh, opportune time. Uh, In the reading you heard, it gets translated as season, 
and as opportunity, but it's the same word, kairos. You know that in Greek, there is this uh, chronos, which is the chronological clock time, right? Hour by hour. You know, you, you go to work at seven in the morning. That's the chronological time. But then these, these special times, you know, your birthday or anniversary, things like that, that is a kairos time, a special time, a, a fullness of time. And so Paul writes, so let's not get weary of doing good for in due season, that is at the right time, at the kairos, the appointed time of God, you will reap. It's the time that God determines for us. So that as we have opportunity, that is, as we have this kairos, these, div- these divine appointments, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. We are to treat opportunities to do good as divine appointments given to us by God to both sow and to experience the harvest. If you need an opportunity, you know, just look in the church bulletin, and you can see where you might sow. Next week, for example, with the Operation Christmas Child boxes, with Lamu, with a word of thanksgiving, and all the various ministries that we are always looking for help with, even things like setting up and cleaning up, that's a form of sowing. And Paul's reminding us that we have opportunity to do good and that we can approach every day with this attitude that perhaps this is one such kairos moment that God is... is inviting me to open my eyes and to see that this is a fulfillment, that this is a fullness of time. Not just in the scheduled good that we might do, but maybe in those very interruptions that keep you from doing those planned and scheduled good. Maybe the people that are interrupting your life right now, maybe that's the moment that God is calling you to reap. And third, Paul says then, walk by this rule. As he closes this letter, he tells them that he is personally writing this last section with large letters. It's it's the first century equivalent of using all caps in a text. He's saying, this is important. And here he simply summarizes his warning, contrasting himself against the false teachers, accusing them of being hypocrites and insincere and wanting only to use the Galatians for their own boasting and to avoid persecution. Instead, Paul says, he will boast only in the cross. He will boast only in the cross and calls them to walk by this rule. This rule. And the word rule here is not the word that he's used uh, elsewhere, meaning the law. There's a difference between law and rule. The word rule here is canon, from which we get cannon. Not the, not the military artillery cannon but C-A-N-1-N-O-N, canon, as in a rule of conduct or a a rule for measurement. And this is the the way we use the term ruling elder in the church, right? It's not that they're ruling over you like, you know, like a mafia boss as a ruler, but we're talking about they're, they're, they're measuring the faith of our congregation in light of the word of God. They're taking measure of our faith together according to the word of God. And so Paul says, walk by this canon, by this rule, just as he had written in the last chapter, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. If you want a rule for life, then walk by this canon of love, this canon of freedom, this canon of being crucified 
to the world. This canon of being alive to God's new creation. This canon of being alive in the spirit. This canon of being bound by faith to one another. This is the measuring stick by which we gauge our faithfulness to God and to the gospel. And this is the sign of our adherence to the spirit of God. The old rituals and religious practices don't matter. Circumcision and uncircumcision doesn't matter. Only faith. Only the new creation, the new Israel, the new people of God. And in this new creation, in this new reality made possible by the cross, all this law insistence just has no place. It makes no sense. It does not fit in to this new reality that we are living in. What matters, the only thing that matters, is faith in Jesus Christ. This is the one true gospel. Let me, uh, let me close with this. In starting through the, this letter uh, of Galatians this time, I was really struck by the fact that nine times in this letter, Paul addresses the Galatians as brothers. Right? He, he sprinkles this word, brothers. That's a lot. That's a lot. You know, at times in the letter, he's been pretty harsh with them. And so, you know, he, he's reminding them that we're family, brothers. But in addition to calling them brethren, brothers and sisters, he uses a lot of familial language throughout the letter. He speaks of God the Father, Jesus the Son. You are the sons of Abraham and the sons of God. You are the offspring of the promise. You are the children of Sarah, who is your mother, the free woman. You are children, you are heirs, you are adopted, and you have received the spirit of the Son into your hearts, by whom, through whom, you can cry out, Abba, Father. He even speaks of birthing Christ among the Galatians, right? I mean, it's this this idea of family scattered throughout the entire letter. You You can't miss it. And he calls us to do good to everyone, but especially to the household of faith. Not to your own family, but to the household of faith, to your faith family. So so we are to do good to everyone, okay? To everyone. But, he says, especially to the household of faith. The New Testament often talks about family as, as a metaphor for the Christian community, And we have heard it so often that we forget how crazy and radical this ideal is. In a culture where family meant everything, where who you were born into, your your blood ties, basically determined your destiny. That's all that mattered. And for Paul to say, no, no, doesn't matter whether you're Jewish or Gentile, free, slave, male, female, none of that matters. Everything that matters is no, none of that matters. What matters is faith. And you are now the household of faith. And unless you accept this new reality, this new way of thinking about your life and the world, unless we receive the words that Jesus himself spoke on the cross, behold your mother, behold your son, unless we 
rewire our brains to think of the household of faith as a new reality into which God has invited us, none of this is going to make sense. And none of this will work. Most of you know, and the first century Christians certainly knew this better than us, the importance of family and the power that a family exerts on your own life. And you would do anything for your family, even pluck out your eyes for someone in your family. Well, certainly moms would pluck out their eyes for their kids in a family. Right? This is the new reality created by Jesus, and it's the life into which Paul is calling the church. You know, a few weeks ago, I had a really great reminder about this, that it's this sense of family that will lead us to do extraordinary things, that, that it is family and for family that we will gladly bear one another's burdens and that we will work to restore in a spirit of gentleness and do good for them so that it can be restored to the way it's supposed to be. Um, I want to tell you a story, and I want to tell you that uh, it has a happy ending, so don't be too alarmed by the beginning of the story, okay? So a few weeks ago, uh, I was at a board meeting, uh, the board of trustees here, and I got a text from my wife, and the text read, can I talk to you? Now, I know that she knows I'm in a board meeting, and so that I know for her to want to talk to me right now means that something is wrong. So I call her right away, and I can tell by her voice that she's flustered, and she begins to tell me this story. She says that she got a call from my father. So my first thought, the first things that are running through my head is something happened to my mom. And different scenarios, all bad, just kind of just start cluttering my brain. But it's not my mother. She tells me that my father got a call from our son, Peter. Peter, a college student, calling his grandfather. Calling anybody is so rare (laughs) that I'm getting even more anxious. My father called my wife to inform her that he had received a call from our son and that Peter had told him that he was in a car accident and that he needed his grandfather's help. Peter reassured his grandfather that he was okay, that it was the other driver's fault in the accident, but unfortunately, the police gave him a breathalyzer test at the site of the accident and that, unfortunately, his alcohol level was over the limit, and so he was taken to jail in Atlantic City. Well, my father told Peter that he would help him. But he also said to him, call your parents. And he hung up. (laughs) After he hung up with Peter, my dad called my wife. Mind you, not me, his only son my wife. Now, so at this point, as you might imagine, I'm in quite a bit of shock. I cannot believe the story that I'm hearing, that Peter did this, and that he didn't call us, but that he called his grandfather. I'm both angry that he tried to hide this from us, 
But I was also a little glad that he had someone that he could call for help. So at this point, my head is starting to explode (laughs) as all kinds of thoughts are rushing through my brain. What do I need to do? Do I need to get a lawyer? How am I going to scream at him? And things like that. My wife continues with the story. She tells me that she was freaking out after that conversation, that her whole body was shaking. She was also frantically thinking about, what do I do now? And so she called Peter. Mind you, not me, but Peter. (laughs) But this isn't about me. He doesn't answer his phone. So she calls his girlfriend. She doesn't answer the phone. But she does text back that she's in class. And so at this point, my wife is just really worried for her, for our son. And she's worried about how scared he must be in jail and so on. Now, thankfully, not too long afterwards, Peter calls her back and tells her that he didn't pick up his phone earlier because he'd been sleeping because his a cappella group had a late gig the night before, and so he was sleeping in. Uh, This was probably about 10, 11 in the morning. Now, my wife, as a loving mother, doesn't want to make her son feel any worse than she knows he must be feeling. And so she calmly asks him, what happened last night? And Peter says, what do you mean? (laughs) My wife then even more calmly tells him, your grandfather called, and I just want to know what happened and that you're okay. And Peter says, what are you talking about? I didn't call grandpa. He further tells her that he's been on campus, he hasn't been to Atlantic City, and that you ought to know I never drive. (laughs) So my wife now is just feeling this mixture of confusion and relief, and she FaceTimes with him to make sure that he is (laughs) in his apartment on campus, even though she's already tracked his phone and knows that he's there. And she sees that he looks okay. And that's when it dawns on her that my grandfather was being scammed. In his case, he hung up the phone before they got a chance to ask him, wire me some money so I can get out of jail. Now, mind you, when my wife called me and told me this story, she did not preface the story with, this is a funny story. It has a happy ending. Instead, she sounded all panicky and started with, your father called to say, our son Peter is in jail because he was driving drunk in Atlantic City. She wanted me to experience what she experienced. That's what you share as a couple. Now, you know that when teachers from your school call, they always start the conversation by saying, don't worry, nothing's wrong, right? All right. Well, My wife and I were talking about this afterwards, and we realized, first of all, it's a dangerous world for the elderly. I mean, it's scary, right? These scammers are so sophisticated and so evil, they target the most vulnerable of people, and they're using a grandparent's love against them. They call and ask, Grandpa? And my dad, he only has two Grandson, so he went with the first one. Peter? (laughs) Yeah, this is Peter. I mean, right? And in the flood of the emotions and everything else, 
the voice doesn't quite match, whatever, but my grandson needs help. They know that a grandparent will pluck out their eye for their grandchildren. The scam works because of the love that they have for their family. Right? I think this is the community Paul envisions. It only works. It only makes sense if we understand. This is the radical vision of Christianity. That the that the bonds that bind us as a church, in the spirit, in Christ, is deeper than the natural biological bonds we share in blood families. That's the life to which we are being called. That's the new reality into which we are to live into. You know, of all the metaphors in the church, about the church in the Bible, this is the one that is the most powerful and really the most shocking. It, it doesn't make sense. How? Why should I care about this semi-stranger to bear their burden more so than even my own family? It makes no sense. Unless the gospel is true. Unless we are in the spirit and in Christ and we have come to know that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that through his cross, through his death and resurrection, we are now a part of God's family. That this entire idea of what it means to be related to one another is reorganized and transformed. We are the children of God together. We are the new family of God. The gospel is not about abstract laws and new rules to follow. It's about freedom and the freedom to work out our faith in Jesus Christ in love. It's about creating this new community, this this extended family of God gathered around the Spirit and in the Spirit where there is such deep sacrificial love for one another that we give the shirts off our backs for one another. It's a community where you can call my wife anytime because you know she will answer and will help you. I mean, you can call me too, but I know you're going to call my wife first. (laughs) This is what it means to be in Christ. This is what it means to be the free children of God, living in the Spirit, living in faith and by faith, and bearing the fruit of the Spirit together. And it's possible because of the cross. It's possible because of Jesus. Let no one deprive you of this truth. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, sisters and brothers. Amen. Let's pray together. God, you have called us that instead of bearing the marks of circumcision, of religion, of religiosity, you call us to bear one another's burdens and to bear the mark of Christ. God, help us always to be mindful every day in every moment of the all-sufficiency of the cross and the gospel. Help us to walk by the rule of freedom and the faith working through love. To work toward the ministries of restoration and doing good and to recognize 
these, these moments that you have appointed for us, both to sow and to reap. And God, help us to take seriously and joyfully what it is to live into and to be the household of faith, the household that you have made possible for us. We ask this as your children in Christ. Amen.